there's no such thing as a the traditional business and a digital business, in my opinion. I think all business is digital at this point, and, and I think you agree, and I think that's the premise of your book, and I think my career kind of, kind of follows that path. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, I'm joined with Adam Weber, a longtime friend who is now the Chief Marketing Officer of Varsity Tutors. Adam, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Hey, glad to have you. So before we dive in, I want you to talk about your career pr- progression, starting from traditional CPG and then moving into these digital business models you're in today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I got my career started uh, early on at P&G, right out of undergrad uh, in brand management. I would suggest I, I took a fairly non-traditional path, frankly, somewhat inspired by you, Dave, you know, from day one in my, in my kind of early years at P&G and immediately kind of latched on to things that felt right to me, which was at that, that, that time digital. And in the path, in that, that kind of same path, my, my final three years there, I led uh, marketing for an acquisition of a business that was direct to consumer and had e-commerce and retail. And it just lit up all the things in your, you know, in, in your brain. All the nodes were, were 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 stimulated, if you will. And I started to realize what I eventually came to the conclusion on that, you know, the power of building a brand is is more powerful through through digital. It's more powerful through one to one relationships. And so I left PNG at that point, given that at that stage of kind of PNG's history, they didn't have a lot of options for me to continue down that path. Uh, and I started uh, getting deeper into e-commerce. So I worked uh, at Guilt Group, which back in 2012 was uh, in much better shape than it is today. They were uh, had potentially a flawed business model, but they had a, a wonderful group of people who I, I feel like I was able to learn from uh, that were all experts in direct consumer. They had, they either you know focused on personalization and CRM, early early stages of Facebook customer acquisition, mobile app installs, uh, you name it. They were on the forefront of those technologies and those digital uh, capabilities. And I took that experience uh, and combined it with my PNG experience and uh, went to Dollar Shave Club early on. And I was 10th employee, was able to see in that business what I consider the combination of both the best of both worlds, uh, which was all the, the foundational, important brand building, consumer driven, insight driven, strategy driven uh, parts of a, of a brand management role at PNG, but coupled with all the performance driven, analytically driven kind of other side of the brain driven aspects of, of Guild Group and direct consumer. And that's really the light by which we built Dollar Shake Club, which was finding that Venn diagram intersection of, of brand building and brand driven and uh, with, with performance and analytics. Uh, and that ultimately, um, after the, the acquisition from, from Unilever at Dollar Shave Club, kind of my curiosity continues down the path. Uh, I've taken, taken kind of a different path uh, instead of staying in the CBG realm. I've gone into the education space, still direct to consumer, still digitally driven, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. And really, I would just say, like, to, to sum it up, I think, I think what's happening is a collision or, uh, or a lack of delineation between the, the worlds any longer. There's no such thing as a the traditional business and a digital business, in my opinion. I think all business is digital at this point, and, and I think you agree, and I think that's the premise of your book, and I think my career kind of kind of follows that path. Yeah, no, dead on. And we'll get back to uh, some of the Dollar Shave Club experiences. Yeah. You know, I want to talk about your latest role with yeah. you know becoming the chief marketing officer for Varsity Tutors. 
first, can you kind of briefly describe what is the space that yeah. RC is playing in for those that might not be familiar with the company? Totally. And you're probably not familiar yet. Uh, which is fine. Yeah, I'll do my job. Uh, so Varsity Tutors, um, we are a venture-backed uh, company based out of St. Louis. We have offices also in Seattle and Phoenix. Um, we raised big-time VC, um, big names, TCV, which was an investor in Dollar Shave Club, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, Learn Capital. So uh, over $100 million in totality. We compete uh, in what I call the supplemental education space, which is tutoring, test prep. It's basically any education that you seek outside of the classroom or your primary education. And what we basically do is connect expert instructors with students in over thousands of subjects, ranging from kindergarten phonics to, you know, counting 201 to ACT, SAT, LSAT, MCAT. And the business started a long time ago as more of a kind of a traditional locally driven marketplace where we, you know, connect basically in, in your region within a certain mileage, you know, mile range, an expert in whatever subject you were looking, looking for help in. But a few years ago, um, the business underwent a, ma- a massive transformation and shifted the vast majority of its business to an online platform. Uh, and so we built a proprietary piece of technology that facilitates a two-way uh, one-to-one interaction that's video-based, live, in person, and supplemented with a interactive whiteboard that brings in you know some subject components, allows you to upload your homework, upload te- practice tests, and, and work in an interactive session, almost almost as if you don't know that you're not in person, and that's really the, the intent. And so the business is uh, you know just I guess just over ten years old, about eleven years old now, and you know huge aspirations in a big category. Big, the category itself is big in the U.S. It's it's largely in the U.S. is is run by the incumbents, um, which I'm, I can happy to talk more about. But you know your Sylvan Learning Centers, your Kaplan Learning Centers, the brick and mortars, and there's a few online players, but we are certainly the largest of them all. And that's because we built up over forty thousand tutors on our uh, platform that are ranging in all kinds of levels of expertise from Harvard's, Harvard grads, 99th percentile test takers, down to a certified teacher in elementary education. Yeah. So that's a great shift that you made with moving towards digital. You know, why is it this belief that online can offer really a superior experience to in-person? Because it's always been the belief that in-person was quote-unquote better. Absolutely. I think we 100% believe online is a superior education style, especially in the live format. I think there's a few reasons. One, online allows you to knock down those geographic barriers. And so the quality of the tutor is incredibly better uh, when you move into a world where you can get connected to a tutor no matter where you are. The example we always like to use is like, would you like to learn Russian from somebody who lives in Russia or somebody who lives in Hyde Park, Ohio. And the answer is likely you'd like to learn Russian from somebody that knows Russian and lives in Russia. And that's what we're allowed to do. Now that's an extreme example, but what that allows us to do is get the best tutor for you. And that's ultimately what people want is the best instructor and the best educator. The second thing it does is allows for us to get really smart using AI and personalization. So not only are we getting a best credential tutor, but we're actually able to start to identify what are the attributes that a student needs that will like link to success with students and tutors, match those and make sure that we're delivering a personalized experience whether that's in matching or whether that's in uh, the continuing process of how you learn and the learning experience that you are able to to get across multiple sessions. The example I use there is every single one of our sessions is recorded. That's a benefit to the customer and to the the student and the tutor. Uh, If you're a parent of a kid, you don't have to linger over uh, your kid to hear how they're doing. You can watch their session within minutes after it ending. And if you're a tutor, you can rewatch sessions to understand what's working and what's not working. We also collect a tremendous amount of data from that that we can use to help further uh, support our personalization efforts. I would say the third reason why we think it's superior is 
the obvious one, which is it's way more convenient and easy and frictionless. Uh, if you are a parent and you have a couple of kids and you have to drive up to the Huntington Learning Center or the library to meet with your local tutor, what are you going to do for an hour and a half? You know, and and we think that you know the quality of the experience combined with the convenience is a winning formula. And we, you know, really we have barriers to face. People believe that the online experience is not superior to in person and. You know, it's our job to, to show those, the, show the benefits, show the outcomes, uh, and and live up to what we think is true. Yeah. So that insight that you guys have for varsity, you know, that online tutoring is a superior experience. You know, that has parallels in countless industries, mm-hmm. and you've kind of made your career out of those countless opportunities. Why do you think incumbent companies really fail to see the potential that digital has, mm-hmm. time and time again, that it does offer a superior experience? There's a little pattern recognition in there, right? (laughs) Uh, So here's what I'd say. I actually don't think that they don't realize it. I think they do realize it, at least recently. I think I call it shackles. So for something, some reason, I think the incumbents are probably sitting around saying, like, we're a little behind here. We need to figure this out. But they have shackles on their business in some way, shape, or form. At in CPG or at Dollar Shave Club, that was the shackles of retail. Uh, you have these channel conflicts of going direct to consumer, of becoming digital business because you have so much of your business sitting in Walmart or Target or Amazon. In in education, I think that our the learning centers have the shackles of franchise models. Uh, so all of their locations are physically based. They have leases. They have franchisees owners that have businesses that are rooted out of those physical locations and. As a company, they have a duty to, to make their franchise owners happy. That's how their business runs. And so as a result, direct to consumer is kind of in conflict with that. And so I, I don't I'm sure if we went down the line, I bet you every single incumbent has some kind of shackle that's keeping their, their business constraint down. I, I don't think that not, they're not moving because they don't have a desire to. I think it's because they there's too much risk to, to get up to break those shackles. And um, you know, I, I think it's also a good lesson for like whether you're an incumbent or not, like that. You know, even as the upstart, that at some point you create shackles for yourself and you got to figure out how to break through the shackles and be able to take risk so that you're not innovated against. And it's just a constant cycle. It doesn't matter. I guess, the, in other words, the definition of incumbent is changing uh, so rapidly that you need to make sure you don't shackle yourself as well. Yeah. No, it's a great concept. It's uh, one that Aaron Lee, Diva Box, did a yeah. class at uh, Stanford that was called the Industrialist Dilemma. Yeah. It's okay. kind of that similar the concept yeah. of the things that gave you an advantage are now a disadvantage. Totally. And what do you do with it? So in the intro, you mentioned that you were the, the CMO for Dollar Shave Club, you know, a brand that most people are yeah. very familiar with. Uh, you know, really it was that first consumer exit that hit a billion dollars when you guys sold to Unilever. You mentioned that you sell that role as an equal blend of performance marketing and brand marketing. And that's what really gave you guys an advantage versus a lot of others. Why do you think both sides of those that coin is so important and you yeah. can't just do one versus the other? Yeah. Great question. And it's one that's near and dear to my heart. I, I personally think um, that that is a false choice, that there shouldn't be two sides of a coin, that uh, essentially those two things are one and the same. Uh, and, what, and what I mean by that is it's really, if you just take the words out of it, everything should perform and everything should build your brand. And what, uh, if you, what do you, you know, if you clear the dust, really what it comes down to is accountability and the ability to measure long-term value. And so no performance marketer 
or I should say this, a performance marketer's best friend is a brand that has long-term value. And a brand marketer's best friend is a performance marketer who knows how to measure and account and, and account for long-term value creation. And that's what we try to do. And so the example I use to, to take it up concept is the, you know, what we call the decay curve of a TV ad. If you only uh, measured the value of a TV ad, like you measured the value of a search ad, and it looked at immediate attribution from what happened in the 10 minutes after a TV ad was aired, no one would ever buy sufficient amounts of television. But what everyone comes to realize pretty quickly is that there's a bunch of value that's created after those immediate 10 minutes that is really hard to measure. And so some people don't ever take on that effort to measure what's going on out there and understand that decay curve of value. But that's where actually all the value is. And so if you can figure out how to measure those, those long-term creations uh, and be accountable to performance in all of your channels and with all of your mediums, those two worlds become one and the same. And that's what we did at the Dollar Shave Club. And that's what allowed us to grow so fast because we, we knew that we were creating value in channels that typically people couldn't, uh, couldn't, couldn't measure. And we were able to measure them quickly and, and allow ourselves to, to find the right investment and the right medium and the right spending levels, frankly, to go after the market at the speed that we did. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. I'll never forget when we were sitting at a, a local brewery here in town, TV ad for Dollar Shave Club came on, you opened your phone and said, I can show you 30 seconds from now what that TV ad just did. Yep. Yeah, market mix modeling in in a CPG world used to happen once a year. Yep. We were doing we were doing market mix modeling daily. Yeah. So that we knew what was happening every with every day, the data would all merge. We would know what our ROI was yesterday, and immediately be able to make changes in our media plan uh, and 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 allocate differently. Yeah. Now, with that in mind, today when you look at the world of D 2 C, the traditional measures of CAC and everything have gotten pretty out of whack in a lot of different mm-hmm. cases. What advice do you give to people that are trying to replicate that model with direct-to-consumer in the current media environment that we're in? Well, uh, yeah, DTC is, I think, in a tough spot right now. Um, and I think what's happened is that, um, or, or maybe I should try to compartmentalize DTC into two worlds, direct-to-consumer that innovates on the actual purchasing experience and DTC, which is largely just the brand innovation. And the reason I say that is because in a true experience orientation, you do keep the relationship. You do like to stay direct to consumer because there's creation. That's the dollar shape up model. And in doing so, you hope that your platform that you create allows for LTV expansion. And that's what the vision was at Dollar Shake Club. We went from razors to personal care, yeah. uh, launched 30 plus other products, tried to use that to, to attach to our best in class retention and ability to uh, extend our lifetime value with our customers beyond the, the razor subscription. And in doing that, that allowed us to take what is in what I call a natural progression of CAC inflation. Uh, and that model works. I think what doesn't work is if you don't create a platform or you don't innovate on the experience and you're just innovating on a brand you're really going to hit your upper limitations, your local maxima very quick because 
we had one other condition working incredibly in our favor is that there wasn't a hundred other direct consumer brands when Dollar Shave Club launched. The cost of a CPM that was targeted on Facebook was probably half of what it is now. And you will hit what I call like your moment where you're like, you've gone into diminishing returns land uh, much quicker if you're starting today or if you started even in the past couple of years, frankly. And what you see them all doing um, is going going away from direct to consumer and taking their brand innovation and saying DTC is just a channel. Yeah. I'm now going to move into retail. I'm going to look at other ways to basically lower my CAC or acquire customers in a more affordable way. And in other words, what we've basically just done is uh, with direct to consumers reframed what the first two years of a traditional CPG innovation cycle looks like uh, and created new brands in a different way that is pr- a proven product market fit. I love that. So many Fortune 500 companies are starting to tor- turn towards M&A as they think about their growth. And you've had a really interesting lens in that because you went from P&G to join Art of Shaving as an acquisition, but then you were part of Dollar Shave Club being bought by Unilever. What do you think these big companies need to keep in mind when they acquire a company to keep the magic going uh, kind of yeah. after the fact? I would say what I, I probably have an A contrarian point of view here. I think natural instinct is to say, keep them separate, put up a ball, put up a big wall, let them continue to innovate. Um, and there's a truth in that. I really do. I don't, I don't disagree with that, but I think my, my point of view is actually, it's, I think it's about the speed by which you can find the best of both worlds. So how fast can the two parties come together and identify what they each do best and then apply it to the business. And I think that's actually where a lot of actors potentially go wrong is that they try to keep separation for too long to make the entrepreneurs happy, keep them away from the bureaucracy. When the reality is like, you might unlock more value if we, if you can just identify what each party brings to the table the best way and then pluck from that value, the best things that can work in your business and try to eliminate bureaucracy. And, and to do that though, you will need a very, um, what's the right word? Uh, a bulldog on the, on the, on the acquirer side who can like fight off all the bureaucracy and still sift through all the, you know, the big companies, innovations and, and capabilities and be able to pull out what makes sense and then drop it into the new acquired company. I think that the, the speed by which you figure that out, I think lends itself to how fast your, your acquisition pays that back or not. And in other words, like there's things that you really brought to the table that I thought were amazing. Um, and my job in, after that acquisition was about finding those things um, and trying to get them on my, on my business at Dollar Shave Club to the, to the, in the fastest way I could without having to deal with the inner politics that, that, that a big company might have to generally you know, operate within. Does that, make, does that make sense? It makes yeah. total sense. So you know, one of the things that's not talked about a lot with acquisitions is the talent side of things. You're not just buying the brand or the company or the revenue, you're buying people. But we've seen recently with things like when Harry's was bought by Edgewell, they named the co-founders to be co-presidents mm-hmm. of North America. Do you think big companies are starting to realize the, the importance of talent with some of these acquisitions as well? I, I hope so. Um, I, think that, I think that part of the true benefit of these acquisitions is that it's, a, it's essentially a massive hire from without strategy uh, or higher outside, I should say, um, as opposed to higher from within. I think that that this, uh, the reason why the big companies have moved at the pace they have, which I would say is generally slow, is that they've tried to accomplish this same level of innovation with their, their own people. And no offense, there's probably brilliant people at all those companies, but uh, they don't have the hands-on experience that, that you know, the other side has. And so I think the, the, the strategy of, a, of making the, the 
intangible value of the people is absolutely an essential one of an M&A, and I don't know how to value that uh, in a price tag, but I do think um, it is valuable. I also will say this. There's an inverse risk with that, depending on what position you put that talent in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that equally, there's many of a highly successful entrepreneurs in the DTC space who have no idea how to run a how to run an actual CPG company. And so there's, there's risk both sides here, but I think, you know, the key is that I think knowing what what everyone's best at and making sure that you don't, you know, screw it up based off of that. Yeah. So you talked about how, you know, you've got this different model with DTC where it becomes almost a a way to concept test and product market fit. And when you launched a brand a decade ago, really the only option was traditional food drug mass. That's, that was your first choice. That's what you did. But today, if you have a new brand, you can think about selling through your own website. You can go to Amazon. You can go through partners. You can go to retail. You have all of these different places. Yep. What advice do you give to somebody today? If, where do you even start? And is there a right model or a right way? I don't, I don't know that there's right or wrong. Um, you know, I, I, I think there is a ton of value Um at least in the early stages of proving product market fit, it's almost become too easy to be honest with you. Like, which is, which is another problem. Like it's, it's honestly, you know, you're like a, you know, a six figure IO away with a branding agency in New York, a very mild Shopify account, uh, you know, mildly costing Shopify account with some slight tweaks, yeah. uh, in a Facebook ad, 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 uh, you know, uh, campaign and you, you know, you might, you might be on your way to a 10 or $15 million brand pretty quick. Um, and that's almost like too easy because then you, then the definition of what is a product market fit gets confusing. I think what I think is going to un, un, unravel here is that because there's so many of them at this point and that everyone has figured out that you can, you know, basically put those three things together and get something off the ground pretty quick that I think there's going to be a lot of consolidation. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of like mid, small to mid-sized direct-to-consumer companies who aren't able to diversify their distribution channels or don't have enough power at the table uh, with the big dist- the retailers, which is the same issue which always created the barrier, uh, that get rolled up into one company uh, and then and unlock the value of having a single capability across multiple direct-to-consumer brands with more leverage in, at the at the uh, and uh, negotiating power at the table with with the retailers. In other words another CPG company with a, new, with a different capability set uh, is what I think is happen, happens next. Yeah, makes total sense. Yep. So I want to shift a little bit to our, our final question of the personal side of things. Yeah. So after Dollar Shave Club, you decide to do what I think a lot of people kind of question a little bit of. You returned back home to Cincinnati yeah. uh, and jumped into the entrepreneurial scene that we have here uh, to see what's going on. Having spent your career in New York, Miami, Los Angeles, and now back home here in Cincinnati. What are you seeing the differences between how businesses and entrepreneurs and startups, both good and bad, between the coast and the Midwest? Yeah. Um, well, I think that I would say I think a challenge in the Midwest, um, not to start on a theoretical negative, but is I think that there, uh, there hasn't been a lot of success yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, at scale success, I should say. There's definitely been successes, but one thing that I think is important, and and you see how the LA ecosystem, because I was I kind of saw it unfold right in front of me yeah. uh, in my five years there. 
it, it all it's compounding effects of multiple successes because what that does is it brings more money, more people, and then more money, more people generate more ideas, which generate more money and more people. And and in other words, success begets success. And so I think the Midwest is early in that cycle. Yeah. Uh, and the successes it has, it hasn't had big ones yet. Um, Chicago, I should say, is maybe you know the outlier, and I think there's a different set of variables going on in Chicago than perhaps St. Louis or Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that that challenge basically means that if you're starting new, you have less talent to pull from. Getting money is harder. That doesn't mean that you can't succeed. I think it just means that you have to find the right type of individual, that the right type of entrepreneurs to operate. Sometimes, you know, a trap that I think people may fall into is that you're trying to build a startup and you go into what a company does, a city does well, which is a big company, and there's a mismatch there on talent. There's, you know, and, and I think there's a different type of entrepreneurial breed that it takes to get to the success early. And there just needs to be more of that. Um, so I think that's, that's probably the challenging side of it. I do think the flip side of it is probably a a combination of two things right now. One is that the obvious one is Cincinnati, the Midwest, it's much better standard of living. If you're going to raise a family, if you want to, you want to live in a comfortable home, uh, you want to have a yard for your kids to, to play in or to be back around the family that you grew up with, like being on the coast is, is not your cup of tea. Uh, I think there's a lot of people in that position right now that have all like, spent their early career to get up and up and up. And now it's time to, to shift. Yeah. And so I think you, you're just going to start to see a wave of that boomerang happening. And what I think that will ultimately lead to is an influx of talent for the startups in the ecosystem, in the ecosystem but also I, I think a, a much higher likelihood of loyalty. So when the good news is, is that when, if there's not a lot of things for people to bounce around, uh, which there is in LA or San Francisco or New York, I think you'll get people to stick around uh, and drive success over a long term uh, and invest back in the ecosystem multiple times because they have found what they want, which is the combination and balance of, of happiness in their personal life and happiness in their professional life, um, which I think is just frankly sometimes hard to find at later stages of life in LA, San Francisco, or New York. Um, and so, so I think a quick I, pause on that yeah. because it's something you and I have talked a lot about is, you know, as you were contemplating coming back to the Midwest. You had that question of how do I re-engage with an ecosystem that maybe I haven't been as professionally connected to for, you know, five, 10 years. What steps did you take to re-engage with the ecosystem so you didn't just land in a city and hope you found something? Uh, it's definitely hard. Uh, I, I think um, I would say two things were in my favor. I had some somewhat of a network already here because I had worked here at one point in Cincinnati. Um, and so I was able to tap into that. But I think the point I would I would call out is that it, you have, it has to be an effort. You can't just like, it doesn't fall in your lap. Like you have to make a proactive effort. And I would say that there were times in my, in my career where I didn't make an effort, you know, and, and I would, you know, I, I would probably disappear from the Cincinnati scene and not really show up very often to things or not really, you know, reach out to folks and then realize that like, you know, you, there's, there's a long-term benefit to those relationships and to that network. And I think you have to be proactive about it. You have to invest time in it and be willing to invest time in it. Both of my jobs since I left Dollar Shape Club were an outcome of me taking a call that I really shouldn't have, have didn't need to take to help out another fellow entrepreneur that allowed me to open doors to new business ideas and to new networks that were both out of the Midwest. Uh, and so I think that's a, a telltale sign of what you have to do, which is to spend the extra 45 minutes to walk an entrepreneur who start their business out to give them ideas about what you've learned uh, and never know when that'll come back to benefit you. So, Yeah, the power of karma is one that I don't think enough people think. Yeah, totally. 100% subscribe to that. 
Awesome. Well, Adam, always a pleasure to catch up. I really thank you for taking the time and uh, I'm sure this is going to spark a ton of things for different people. So appreciate you taking time to share. Thanks for having me, Dave. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.